right, everybody. Good morning. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Everybody getting settled. It's all good. Welcome to the last, conclu- uh, the, the last week, the conclusion of our HVAC series. Uh, want to thank um, everybody who contributed to the series. Um, and what we've been doing is we've been talking about, uh, what does HVAC stand for? Exactly. Heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, which obviously we need a lot of in this bill right now. Um, but what are we using it for? Uh, Kara. Habits, habits, virtue, and character. And what has been the kind of gimmick that we've used throughout the summer, the way we've gone about looking at HVAC, we've called the manuals. What have we done? Uh, somebody other than Kara. Because I'm going to call on you a lot today, and so I need you to know, spread out the love a little bit. Rachel. Exactly. Different folks uh, in our congregation, different leaders in our congregation, whether they be ministry leaders or elders or house church leaders, um, worship leaders, different people have talked about different pieces of literature or music or artwork or something to that effect, something that built into their character, something that kind of made them the unique person that God, uh, kind of how God worked through them, you know? Um, And so what I wanted to do today was kind of... um, make this the culmination of that series, um, in that I also wanted to kick off the edges, uh, our, our middle and high school ministry, uh, their first, uh, their kind of season for the year. Um, so what we're going to do today is that we're going to pick through an especially kind of thorny passage, a passage that's not um, something that you might look at and say, this makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Um, it might be something that you wrestle with a little bit. Um, And what we're going to do is we're going to try to think about the HVAC manuals, the HVAC lessons that we learned about throughout the year, or throughout throughout the summer. Now, can anyone remember, or let's say if you actually preached the sermon um, can you remember what your main point was when you preached the, uh, the, the HVAC kind of manual, your, your thing? Can anybody think of something that they heard, or if you're actually one of the ones that said it, you could say what your main point was. What is the habits, the virtue, and the characters that you were hoping to get, get across? Anybody? Having a cow. Having a cow. What was, ha- what was having a cow about? I've never seen that before, yeah. You saw something, maybe you've looked at it a dozen times, maybe you've looked at it three dozen times, you've read that passage over and over and over again, but I never saw it quite that way before. Wow, I had a cow because it was kind of this all experience Anne taught us about. What else? Two more, Miss Matthew. Oh. Yeah, Miss, Miss Darcy talked to us about um, sometimes we're, we're afraid, sometimes we, our fear makes us not want to go to God because we assume that our own problems, our own fears, our own doubts um, are really uh, 
something that would make God's love, which is this house of cards, crumble. And that's a false idea about what God is. What God really is, is the rock that our little stones of doubt and our little stones of, of our own problems are really can rest uh, firmly upon that rock that is God. One more. What other one? Uh, Rachel. Oh, yeah. I love what Bill had to say about, um, he quoted Ender's Game, and that when I truly know my enemy enough to defeat him, uh, in that very way, I also uh, love him. What a neat idea. For me, that really had powerful implications about the Trinity, Um, that that the idea that God knows us intimately. He knows every little bit of our lives, um, and he knows us well enough to destroy every little bit of us that stands in opposition to his holiness. And then Christ knows us that well to come in sacrificial love. And that was like, wow, powerful. I had such a awesome time during that week. So these are the things that I want thinking about in our head as we go through it. So today, open your Bibles or punch your buttons or whatever it is you do, to Exodus 11. You do. Or bring up your pages. Very good. Um, could I get uh, Andrew? Would you be our reader for this morning? Sure. All right. Hop on up. Okay. So um, what I'm going to do is rudely interrupt you as you start speaking. <laughs> So, so just begin, and when I say stop, stop. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Stop. Okay. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. What do we know about Pharaoh and Egypt? Okay, so the Israelites were kept as slaves. Um, and what do you know about, let's say, um, what would you think is the most important aspect? Where is the, the story of the Exodus found? Yeah, well, what part of the Bible is it, is it found? The Bible is one Exodus. answer. Hmm? It's in the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament is it? It's in the beginning, during the portion that's commonly referred to as the Torah. Or some you might have heard called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. Now, in relation to the Exodus, how important is the Exodus to the story of, let's say, redemptive history? And specifically, the story of Israel. Very important? Um, without, without the Exodus, uh, kind of would have just ended there. Without the Exodus, it would have, it would have ended. Um, so what do you think of, when you think of, of Torah... What word, um, you, you guys, um, I've probably used this word a bunch of times in, re- in relation to Torah. Like, what do you think is the, is the really key thing to remember about Torah? I think it is to give the Israelites, to give Hebrews, to give Israel identity. It's something that grounds them. It's something that tells them about themselves. It reminds them of themselves. And more importantly, it reminds them about God and his faithfulness through the story. How important is the exodus to that? Extremely important. 
So this is what I actually just got a book in the mail the other day for my Old Testament class that I'm going to take this year. Um, and this is the first quote, the first line, the first sentence of the story about the Exodus. It would be hard to overstate the central importance of the Exodus experience for Israel's understanding of itself and its faith. So the idea of the Exodus is of monumental importance. Um, Now, real quick, what do you know about Egypt apart from the Bible? Um, There are lots lots of pyramids there. A lot of pyramids, okay. How old is it? It's yeah, okay. It it's it was one of the first major kingdoms. Um, Cleopatra was closer to seeing uh, the first iPhone than to seeing the first pyramid built. This is a good answer. Um, <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Um, old. Um, <laughs> um, no, this is a good answer. Yeah, it was one of the major early ancient superpowers, civilization of the day. For the Bible to use this is really cool. Because what it doing, it's doing is showing that, that, that Israel, that God's people, is actually moving into a very um, um, unique opportunity. So, at any rate, continue, Andrew. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, you will dri- he will drive you away. Okay, stop. Okay. Can anybody find Exodus 6 for me? Got it? 6-1, please. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this, his country. So this is something that God wanted to remind them of, that, it's, that, that they're going to get driven out of there. There's going to be something of um, monumental importance. It's going to be something uh, almost aggressive in the way they're driven out. Continue, Andrew. Tell the people that every man is to ask his neighbor, and every woman is to ask her neighbor for objects of silver and gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials and in the sight of the people. That's interesting, isn't it? That they said that, that Moses had, was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials, and in the sight of the people, who's specifically not mentioned in that sentence? Rachel. Uh, the Jews? The Jews, right. But in relation to Egypt, Pharaoh isn't mentioned specifically. Um, it's like that, that, that Moses has, is a man of great importance in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's officials and in the sight of the people, but not Pharaoh. So that's interesting. Continue. Moses said... Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill. Okay, two things right there. Can anybody find Exodus 1 for me? 122. Um, Alicia. Alicia. So there was this horrendous thing that happened at the beginning of the story where the Egyptians were trying to decrease the numbers of the Hebrews. And one of the things that they did was 
try to kill babies. Um, so it might give you a little bit of the context of moving forward. Now, what's going to happen, as Andrew said, um, is that uh, Moses has said that God has said, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the hand mill, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. What does that mean? What's the, what do you think is the significance of um, it going from Pharaoh's household to the, the, this, this, the, the, the one working the hand mill? Um, from the highest level to the lowest level, all of them are going to die. Is this like a revenge story? You know, I think that one of the things that's good about, about wrestling through a text like this is just that, is that we're kind of wrestling it. We're asking questions. And sometimes when we're looking at Torah, um, sometimes we're looking at the Bible, sometimes the questions that we have kind of tell us more about ourselves um, than whatever answers we might think of. So I think that that's a, a reasonable question. It might be thinking about, uh, uh, about it in that, in that way. Um, but I also think that there might be a hint of, um, of justice question here. Um, that obviously what's going to happen here is something horrendous, something very dark. You know, we're talking about the idea of God um, killing children, of, of children dying, um, and the idea that, um, that there's a special mention made of this being from uh, the top to the bottom, hints that, you know, for me at least, it tells me that, that God's saying, I haven't lost sight of my justice that I'm still thinking about this in terms you might understand. Uh, Andrew. Um, something that I was not explicitly aware of and something's kind of tacked onto that sentence is that also the firstborn of all of the livestock is also going to die. Yeah. So. Okay. What is, what is, what's the importance of livestock, do you think? Food. Food and... What's that? Wealth. Well, yeah. Kind of their, their financial state, economic state. Uh, all right. Cool. Continue. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole... Stop. When was the last time, when is another major, major important time that we hear, we hear Exodus talking about crying? Let's see if somebody else besides Andrew and Kara can get it. Can somebody, hey, Jason Hops, you got a Bible there? Could, could you look up Exodus 3 verse 7 for me? You got it? Who's, who's got it? Rachel's got it? All right, let's go to Rachel. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Hmm. Um, so... There was a cry. And... One person said, I've heard it said, that the cry of the Exodus kind of inaugurates history. Um, it's a neat idea in that it's, there's a response. It's like God heard the cry of his people, and now there's going to be a cry in Israel. And it says, it makes specific note, what does it say? Something about there'll be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as there has never been or ever will be again. Does he think about what maybe the significance of that is? Andrew? It's going to be really loud. It's going to be very loud. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it, it's, it's going to be a unique cry. Something very special, something very unique is about to happen here. Yes, Kara? Um, it's going to come, like, with something monumental. Like you said, like, I mean, the other time that I think of God saying it has never happened before and never happens again will be, like, the flood. So, like, that's my mind. 
Yeah. Won't soon be forgotten. Won't soon be forgotten. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Uh, continue on, Andrew. Yeah, oh, yes, I'm sorry. To tack on to the cry, when I read the cry, I immediately thought of in the New Testament um, when it's given the order to kill all the children under two years old or something like that mm-hmm. to kind of get rid of Jesus. In the beginning of the gospel story. Right, and it's telling about how. Seems like it might parallel there, right? Right. Yeah. The loud crying. Anyway. Uh, but a dog shall not gro- shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know of the Lord make you know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So there's going to be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as never been or never never be heard again. It's going to be monumentally painful for 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 Egypt for the people that kind of stand in opposition to God's people. But not a dog will growl at 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 the any of the Israelites, not at the people, not at the animals. So that, and here we're given a purpose statement, which is really important, because if we're trying to wrestle through a text that we don't really quite understand, that might be difficult for us to understand, is like, wow, God's killing babies. You know, this is an extremely difficult thing. Um, so that you might know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Think about it in terms of what I was talking about before in relation to... Um, this is um, a unique experience for Israel. This is something of central importance, uh, what the text said about it would be hard to overstate the importance here. One of the main points of this is that, is that the text wants to make it crystal clear that God makes a distinction between the people of God and the people of, not of God. So I think that's something for us to, to consider as we're trying to wrestle through it. Continue, Andrew. I think it's also interesting that, sorry, that um, twice now in this, in just this small part, it it um, puts the the animals with the people as they're part of the nation. That because they are owned by this people's group, that they are considered part of the nation. That the livestock of the Israelites will be going with them, and that they are that the people or, and the animals are not going to get stopped. Mm-hmm. And that the, the livestock of both human, well, the livestock, the firstborn of the livestock and of the Egypt humans are going to die. That it's kind of all grouped together as they're all part of the same nation. Hmm. Interesting. Um, continue. Then all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, leave us, you and all your people who follow. After that, I will leave. And in hot anger, he left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, in order that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Egypt go out of his land. Okay, so what's difficult about that last bit? God's kind of ensuring that the kids are going to die. By doing what? Hardening Pharaoh's heart. Hardening Pharaoh's heart. That's an interesting line, isn't it? It kind of seems like it takes Pharaoh's choice out of it. Um, You can have a seat. Thank you very much. One of the things is that I don't want to do is make it seem like there's really quick and easy answers. Um, But there are a few things that I personally have been wrestling with over these past couple of months as I've been thinking about this text that might want to, that might help us. 
Um, for instance, what is this building up from, this final plague? How many, what, what happened before this? Andrew. A lot of other plagues. A lot of other plagues. How many other? Bruce? Nine. Nine other plagues happened before this. This is interesting. We're going to go through these really quick. About any time that Pharaoh's heart was mentioned during um, the plagues that were coming up from it. If you go to Exodus 7, verses 20, verse 22. But the, this is after the first uh, plague, which was the waters becoming blood. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to, him, listen to them as the Lord said. Well, there it seems like Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Turn to 8.15. This is after the second plague of frogs. But when the Pharaoh saw that there was a a respite, a relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them just as the Lord said. Third plague, lice, in 8.19. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord said. Fourth plague, flies, Exodus uh, 8.32. Where are we here? 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and would not let them go. Um, plague number five, diseased livestock, chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, Pharaoh inquired and found that no, not one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he would not let the people go. That's five times where it doesn't say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It seems that, God, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart five times in a row. Now, in the sixth one, when we get boils, in Exodus 9:12, it says, "But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses." It wasn't until the boils, it wasn't until that sixth time that now the God seems to have gotten involved in this hardening business. Then this is really interesting. Plague number seven: Hail, 9:34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned once more and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So it seems like we went back then. We went back to now it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart because it mentioned his sin. But then in the, the plague number eight, during the locusts, Exodus ten twenty, we go back to it. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. And then in the 10th plague that we just read about from Andrew, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does that that remind you of anything? I mean, it's tough. It's tough as you wrestle through it that that God is going to try to kind of knock on your heart again and again and again. And eventually he might let you have your way. Maybe. Maybe. Kendall? It reminds me of when DJ was preaching about God being a gentleman. He's not going to force himself. Oh, I like it. That's it. God, BJ reminded us that God is a gentleman and he's not going to force himself on us. But eventually he lets us have our way. If we just choose to ignore him and ignore him and ignore him after he's done again and again and again and been faithful again and again and again, eventually he might say, okay. 
There needs to be a season, there needs to be a time where you need to wallow in your own sinfulness. And that may be what's going on here, I I don't know. Um, But it's something to consider. I think that part of the idea here is to mind the smaller context. Um, to think about that when we look at a passage like Exodus 11, we're not looking at it in isolation. We're looking at it um, as part of a larger story. Just out of curiosity, we don't have a lot of time, but really quick, can you give me like a general idea of what Genesis 1 and 12, what's the themes that happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Anybody. Things that happen in Genesis 1 and 2, big, big picture themes. So creation, uh, let's say things are good, right? Anything else important to bring up? Okay. What is the big picture then of Genesis 3 through 11? Through the stories of Adam and Eve, the, uh, the, 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 the tree, uh, all the way through the Tower of Battle. Kind of what? Um, Adam and Eve's sin. Sin, and yeah. Sin I'd say sin and its consequences, right? Now, what's the big picture of Genesis 12 through 50? What's a like, big picture idea, Ann? Abraham. Abraham. So we might say patriarchs. Patriarchs and the development of Israel. Something like that. Promise. And I might also say calling is extremely important. So... That's the context of Exodus 1 through 11. We've already, or, I'm sorry, Genesis, um, the, the whole book of Genesis. Now we're into Exodus. And we have uh, chapters 1 through 10 to where we get to Exodus 11. We've learned about, already talked about this. This is the enslavement. This is the plagues. This is God's announcement that he's going to save his people. Exodus 11, this is where we're at today. Now, what's that? Very poetic in a sense. Very. Now, big picture. Um, let's just say we don't have you know time to keep going on that. So, what is the big picture then of Exodus 12 through well the end of the Bible? <laughs> what happens in that in that little section? All right, Jesus is a big one. Yeah. Breaking rules. Okay, so more sin. Sin doesn't go away. That's a really, really important uh, part. Yes, Julie? Uh, yep, they do something dumb, and God forgives them. And then they do something dumb again, and God forgives them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So more sin, more consequences, 
more uh, forgiveness, more promises. It kind of keeps repeating. Eventually, we do get to Jesus. What happens after Jesus? Oh, well, before Jesus is the making of the movies, like, it comes the, the law. Yep, very important, very important. Yep. Um, and after, after, after Jesus, or at least, you know, after his earthly ministry, we get... Spreading. This is the church. Yeah. So, this is just like a splash on the page, obviously, <laughs> of the entire picture of redemptive history. Remembering that the Exodus story is extremely important. Remember that you know what happens. You know there's the law, and you know that there's sin, and there's consequences, and then again and again and again, you're going to see this over and over again. You know the development of Hebrew poetry. You know the development of the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and the prophecy that comes from that, the conversation that God has with his people, the development of the kingdom of Israel, um, Israel's place um, in the history of the world and history of, the, of, of, the, of Scripture. You know about the dominance of the Roman Empire coming into the story um, and how Jesus is kind of born into that, uh, that situation. And what he does, we know about the cross, we know about atonement, we know about grace, we know about the work that God does in ourselves to try to, like I said before, about, about God getting in, knowing all of ourselves, and then he eliminates everything that stands in opposition to him, and then he forgives us. We know about that. We know about the development of the church. And then what's that last line of the creed? Not the last line, but what does it say? He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. You know how the story ends. What I'm saying is that when we're sitting and we're wrestling with a text like Exodus 11 and we go, wow, God, I have a hard time with this. God is going to say, don't forget, you know how the story began. You know how the story ends. And here's a trick. Here's another thing that really hit me hard. Who here has ever read Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? Alicia, can you tell me what happens, uh, very, very briefly, um, what does Harry get to see in the Half-Blood Prince? What special thing does he and Dumbledore go see? Well, Harry and Dumbledore go into a cave. Before that. Before that? Yeah. Oh, um, oh so there's this um, magical bowl of magical syrup, and... You can put little special itty bits of syrup in it, and it's kind of like a TV, and you put your head in it, and it shows you people's memories. And you can watch their memories and kind of be in their memories. Uh, the Dumbledores and other characters from the books. Um, Snape? No, not, not yet. Um, uh, um, um, wait, wait, wait. Um, um, uh, what's the guy's name? The guy with the couch. Okay, so what I'm getting at, it's okay, it's okay. She doesn't want to say his name out loud. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Harry gets an opportunity in this story to learn more about his enemy. He gets to learn about Lord Voldemort. And he gets to go and he gets to learn about Lord Voldemort's time as an orphan. He gets to learn about his family life. And what he ends up finding is that when he goes back and he learns a little bit more about the context of his enemy's story, he finds what? That he is, um, he's kind of saddened by it. Like, wow, I can't believe this. At one point, um, you know, it, 
I'm not giving anything away. The, Voldemort's mother was a witch, and she had used a love potion to try to get um, at her, uh, her, um, her husband, uh, used a love potion on her husband in order to kind of get his love, and then when the love potion wore off, the husband left, and now here is Voldemort's mother, Tom Riddle's mother, um, alone. And uh, ends up happening is that she dies, right? And Harry says, this, is, this was the best part of this book. I remember like openly going, oh, I can't believe that's in there when I, when I read this. Um, of course, this is Dumbledore talking. Of course, it is also possible that her unrequited love and the attendant despair zapped her of her powers. That can happen. In any case, as you are about to see, Merope, Voldemort's mother, refused to raise her, wand, raise her wand even to save her life. And this Harry says, she wouldn't even stay alive for her son. And Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. And he said, could you possibly be feeling sorry for Lord Voldemort? And I read that, and I remember thinking, that's a powerful deepness. That's deep. That, that means something. Because it reminds me like you might read this story in Exodus 11 and you might struggle a little bit with how the story is told and you might have questions. But my question to you would be, is it possible that you're feeling sorry for Pharaoh? This person that threw babies in the river? This person that has enslaved Egypt? Here's my thing. I think that if you know the story, you know how the story ends, you know where it began, and you know about sin and consequences, you know about the development of God's rescue mission for the world called Israel, and you know about that, those people going into enslavement and being under the whip, and you know that, and you know how God led them out of that, and you know about the development of Israel's history, and you know about Jesus, and you've experienced grace, and you've experienced that personal relationship, and you know that you have a place in the church, and you have a place in God's world, and you've seen your own sin addressed by God that he said it's nothing about what you did, it's about my love for you, that God sees every little bit of your soul, every little thing about you that stands in opposition to God's holiness, and God says, I am going to zap that from you because I love you, not because of anything that you did, but because I love you to death. When you've experienced that story, it stands to reason that you would feel sorry for Pharaoh in this story. I don't blame you at all. Yeah, this doesn't seem right. It seems weird. It's hard to take because I've experienced grace. I know what it's like when I have sinned and I've experienced God's forgiveness, when I felt God's forgiveness. That's huge. That's monumental. It would only make sense for you to feel that when you feel something in the text that comes before it that might run counter to that. So I wouldn't blame you on that. However, so let's say, and we'll close with this, let's say you have a rule in your house that you're not supposed to let the dog in the living room because the living room is the nicest room of the house. And your mom runs to the 7-Eleven and, oops, I let the dog in the living room. And the dog 
poops on the rug. Oops, what am I going to do? And what you might say is, hmm, I'm going to clean every inch of this room. I'm going to clean the drapes. I'm going to use the pledge. I'm going to clean the vacuum the carpet. I'm going to clean the furniture. I'm going to wash the windows. I'm going to do everything I can to make this room seem as pretty as humanly possible, except I'm not touching that poop. <laughs> it might seem that as we wrestle through a text like this and we start talking about context and we start talking about other things, that I'm just ignoring the poop that's on the rug. Um, and I think that all I mean to say by that is that I don't want to minimize something. You know, Andrew was the one that asked me to, um, to, to talk about this. I said earlier uh, in, the, in the Edge last year, I said, um, I want you to pick a text. I want you to pick something that really uh, you have a hard time with, something that you wrestle with, something that's not easy to take, and then we'll talk about it in a sermon. Um, and he picked this, this text. I don't want to minimize the feeling. Just like I said that, you know, it would make sense that you felt that way. Um, you would make sense that you felt sympathy. I don't want to minimize that. I think it's worth wrestling with. But there's something to do with that unexplainable. There's still something that we have to think about. How are we going to, um, how are we going to do business with the violence that's right outside of our window? What are we going to do about that violence that every time we open up the newspaper, if people still read newspapers, um, every time we turn on the television set or every time we look at the news, every time we watch um, you know, the news on television, that we see this violence and we see this destruction and we see this hatred. Like These are things that you should look at and you shouldn't just wave that off and say, ah, you know, humans will be humans. This should disturb you. There are things that are unexplainable. And for me, one of the things that has been um, really helpful in the development of my own character is music. Um, what we learned from Mr. Mark uh, weeks ago about music um, being one of the ways that he experiences God in kind of unlikely places. And about 50 years ago, there was a band that <laughs> apparently is still around called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> you might have heard of them. Um, and they wrote a song in the middle of the 1960s called Gimme Shelter, which I think is one of the most powerful pieces of music ever written. Like, we're going to listen to it on outro, but I think it is like, th that, that music just hits me where I live. Um, there's something about this song that just makes me, that kind of is like God reminding me that he's there and he's not silent. I want to listen, I want to uh, read you some of the, um, the lyrics of the song. He says, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, Lord, I'm going to fade away. The refrain of the song is war, children. It's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. I see the fire is sweeping at our streets today, burning like a red coal carpet. A mad bull has lost its way. War, children. It's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. All you have to do is look at the newspaper. All you have to do is look at the news. All you have to do is look out your window and you're going to see death and destruction and hatred. You're going to see all kinds of things that make no sense. But we know the story. And one of the things we're doing is that we're resting in this story. The song builds and builds and builds and then a female vocalist comes in. And my apologies, this is going to get a little PG-13. 
The female vocalist comes in. You can't quite hear what she's saying. And she says it soft at first. She says rape and murder. It's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. And she starts screaming it at this incredibly powerful vocalist. She starts screaming rape, murder. It's just a shot away. There are things that are right there. I don't understand this. I don't ex- I don't, this isn't explainable. This shouldn't be something that I just explain away. This is an extremely difficult thing to take. A storm, he comes back. A storm is threatening my very life today. Give me, give me shelter. Or I'm going to fade away. It's right there. It's like... All you have to do is reach out and touch it, that sinfulness. It's in ourselves. It's in our friends. It's in our family. There's something that stands wrong in the world, and we know it. You know it deep in your heart that you need God. It's not a matter of religion being something that we can have because it's a nice little philosophy for us to have. We know love your neighbor. That's great. No. Religion, true religion, faith. Is about knowing that you are desperate for God's grace. You have no other option. There's nowhere else you can go but Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. And when he's first in your life, then everything else is going to come together. But it's reminding ourselves, reminding our, each other that even as sin is within our grasp, other things are within our grasp. The last line of the song Mick Jagger comes back in with the, the Mary Clayton, who's the, the female vocalist, and says, I'll tell you, love, sister. It's just a kiss away. It's just a kiss away. Paul said that um, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. A kiss is so intimate. It's so close. It's that thing that's right there that we need intimacy with other human beings. It would make sense for someone who's going to love God as the central piece of their living, and loving God is intimately, created, intimately connected with loving other people. When you're living that kind of life, greet each other with a holy kiss, with that kind of intimacy. Because Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is within your grasp. You want to see the sin that's there. God's not trying to deny that. In fact, he's going to do serious business with the people that stand in opposition to him. This text is evidence of that. But we know the rest of the story. We know about the cross, and we know that he's in control. Let me pray for us. Thanks, good Father, for this gift that you have given us of your word, of this idea that we can feel comfortable wrestling with it, that we can feel um, safe in knowing that your love is not a deck of cards that's going to crumble under our own opinions, but rather it's a rock. It's something that we're going to come to you with and we're going to get on our knees, and we're going to be humble about it. But the truth is, we are also going to trust you that there's nothing that we can come to you with which we could come to you that you can't handle. You know exactly what we need to do, what we need to hear. And you're going to give it to us in your time, not ours, because you 
are the center of this story, not us. You are the main character of this story, not us. It's all about you, Lord Jesus, not about us. And it's his most holy name that I pray. Amen.